Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. As I've mentioned before, I am a doctor's daughter. My father was a general practitioner that gave his patients his home number so that they could contact him whenever they needed him. One of the things I remember most about my childhood home is the huge lighted clock that was in the corner of my parents' bedroom. Because my dad was nearsighted, he would want to know what time it was if he got a call in the middle of the night. He was of the generation that didn't flaunt the MD after his name. But somewhere in the midst of the last century, possibly with all the medical shows that were on television, doctors became elevated in stature to the point of their patients being somewhat intimidated by them. After the medical response of the COVID pandemic, many wonder what the future is for the doctor-patient relationship. Well, there's an organization, the Benjamin Rush Institute, that has decided to tackle that very thing. And here is its mission stated, to fully unleash the power of medicine, to maximize human health and well-being by promoting solutions that protect the doctor-patient relationship as the primary means for delivering high-quality medical care empowered by a robust free enterprise system that reduces costs and fosters innovations. Well, if there's one thing we learned during the COVID years is that forces outside of the doctor-patient relationship were mandating and prevailing. So hearing about an organization that endeavors to train doctors and soon to be doctors was something I was interested in knowing more about. My guest today is the Benjamin Rush Institute's Executive Director, Richard Walker, who leads the strategic vision of BRI and supervises its day-to-day operations. Thanks for joining me today. Well, glad to be with you, Andrew. All right. Before we get into the origins and flesh out your organization's purpose, let's begin with its namesake. Who was Dr. Benjamin Rush, and why is he a good example of what you are endeavoring to do? Benjamin Rush was a revolutionary era, U.S. revolutionary era doctor. He was trained in Scotland, uh, sponsored by Benjamin Franklin to do so. Uh, He is most famous for introducing a lot of modern techniques, although they still practiced uh, other uh, more time-honored techniques for that time. Uh, But he's best known for being one of the uh, few doctors, I think only three or four. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He did not sign the Constitution, uh, but he did sign the Declaration of Independence. And he's most famous for staying in Philadelphia when they had a huge epidemic there uh, in the uh, right after the Revolutionary War. Uh, And uh, he risked himself and he was one of the few doctors to remain in the city uh, when that happened. And he also wrote the first book on uh, the, the potential for mental disease and how to treat that uh, for for mental disease affecting the body. And uh, for that, he is uh, often, not always, but often credited for being the father of American psychiatry. 
I see. On your website, there is a quote by him that says, temperate, sincere, and intelligent inquiry and discussion are only to be dreaded by the advocates of error. The truth need not fear them. How would you say modern medicine has somewhat lost that perspective? Well, the uh, furor, and I have no basis uh, for uh, evidence or facts necessarily, other than what I read, like a lot of people, but uh, the furor over what happened during the whole COVID uh, pandemic experience. Uh, I mean, we know how bad it was. We know some of the ill effects of it are beginning to become evident to us now, especially on children. But it also affected the practice of medicine greatly. There were a great many things that happened during COVID that we had been debating for quite some time, like telemedicine, so on and so forth, uh, and uh, other innovations that uh, now are becoming still debated, but becoming more and more common and more and more used in the practice of medicine. So the Fauci stuff, the Dr. Fauci Purar, uh, was created not because uh, I have no basis to know whether he's gu- guilty or innocent of any of these things. I'm just saying that uh, the, the furor was created by the lack of uh, open and transparent debate and discussion uh, of how to treat these illnesses, uh, ivermectin being one, uh, which was thoroughly misunderstood, uh, uh, hydroquinone, I think it was, I'm, hydroxychloroquine yes yeah there you go i started saying i was double clutching there on it we actually <laughs> did a paper so i shouldn't have done that but they weren't uh, the solution for everyone uh they they were routinely ridiculed yet they worked very well for some patients the point being not that they were universal and should have been used by everyone but they should have been available they should have been part of every physician's toolkit in treating COVID, and they weren't because they had been ridiculed. Hydroxychloroquine had been ridiculed openly. Ivermectin called horse medicine, although it is used to treat horses for some things in a huge dose. The point being that they weren't openly discussed so that physicians in one part of the country might want to use that as opposed to those in other parts of the country that were using it. I gave a little bit of a history, a personal history of my father who had his medical practice in the mid 20th century and uh, somewhere along the line. And it could have been, I, I mentioned television, but it also could have been this alliance between pharmaceutical companies and medical schools, et cetera, that it seems though doctors were more concerned with maintaining their licenses what insurance would or wouldn't do. And there seemed to be this chasm so that instead of the the patient being a consumer, he, he looked at himself as under the authority of a doctor and couldn't go outside that authority structure. I, I'm interested to know what you think about that. Well, the pharmaceutical benefit managers, uh, it's just a scandal, uh, in, in my opinion, is, is, is coming now beginning to be looked at very closely in Congress from both sides of the aisle uh, because they're discovering that uh, in their effort, and it could be election pressures, I don't know, but in their efforts to determine, to get drug prices down, especially prescription drug prices, 
they're finding that often the culprit is the pharmaceutical benefit manager, but it goes deeper than that. Uh, it is uh, a situation where government being involved, uh, which is not altogether a bad thing. There are certain things like FDA, other types of uh, research that are done to ensure the public safety, so on and so forth. But government getting involved actually in the practice of medicine, mandating what can be done and what cannot be done when the doctor is the one that has gone to medical school, endured a residency, and developed the skills that are necessary to make those very decisions. The other problem is insurance. So what we have right now is a broken healthcare system. It literally is broken. The repair or the remedy, uh, the prescription, we know what the prognosis is. Let's put it in medical terms. The prescription is to give more of this uh, back to the doctor and the patients for whom they care. Uh, we have found that this type of uh, free enterprise, of practice of medicine where it is uh, involved in free enterprise, uh, direct primary care, direct surgical care, uh, and other types of practices, fee-for-service, healthcare sharing ministries, so on and so forth. Patients have optimal outcomes from that. Their outcomes are better. The physicians are more satisfied and uh, have a greater satisfaction with their career, and uh, uh, everybody benefits. The problem is the balance the the system is out of balance it's the the pharmacy the big pharma the pharmaceutical companies big hospitals and the government have the control not the doctor uh, and his patient so it's interesting that you bring that up because i have seen quotes recently from pharmacists or uh physicians who would say things like well i really wanted to do something different but I was concerned that I would lose my license. I was concerned that I'd be fired. And so it, it seems that, and I'm not trying to paint all these people with the same brush, but when I go to a doctor, I don't want him to be more concerned with what his insurance company is going to say or his malpractice insurance, how it's going to be done and being afraid of lawsuits. I want him to talk to me and give me the respect to say, no, I don't exactly agree with that. Could we look for something else? Now, going back to I was a doctor's daughter. Doctors were never, I was never enthralled by doctors. After all, I had one as a dad, right? So it was a much more <laughs> casual kind of thing. Where does this idea that the patient is like third on the list, my, my career, my ability to keep my job or my position, how, how did that change? Or was that, I don't think it was always the case. What do you think? Well, the state medical boards have the power to do that. I mean, they simply do. Um, and, and there are instances of doctors saying, I don't want to say this. I don't want to do that. Do the other thing because I could lose my license or I could lose my ability to practice at this hospital or to see my patients at this hospital. I just returned from a, uh, from Kansas City. The Free Market Medical Association had a spring conference there, a three day conference. And they mostly are concerned with direct primary care, which is simply a method of practicing medicine in which the uh, the patient and the doctor totally disengage from insurance. And it turns out that uh, the, the patient will pay a small fee, monthly fee. Uh, it can range anywhere from $50 to $60, all the way up to $100, $125. And then, and for that, they receive care from the doctor. And anything out of pocket 
like for example, if you need a shot of penicillin or you need uh, some kind of other uh, therapy, then you the, the the patient would pay for that, or they could get a catastrophic insurance plan to pay like a like an HSA, a health savings account works. The bottom line being that this, even though it sounds counterintuitive, this actually turns out to be much more, uh, much cheaper than doing it the regular way, the insurance way. And I would use myself as an example. I'm an older fellow and uh, still I have an insurance policy and I never, I hardly ever use it because I'm in pretty good health, thank goodness. Right. And uh, uh, so I, if, you're, if, you, if you have insurance and you are not meeting your premium, you're not, you're not using as much as your premium. You hardly ever see the doctor you're not using your insurance. It's not paying really for anything. Direct primary care could be very, very attractive. And these doctors that use it, and I'll give you an example. If you are on what we call traditional insurance, you'll go see your doctor. He's got about four or five minutes, he or she, and that's it. They, they just don't have time to engage. Uh, direct primary care doctor, however, routinely spends 20, 25 minutes. They go through everything. Let's talk about what your parents, uh, your the, the diseases that are in your family or were prevalent in your family. What did your mother die of? What did your father die of? What things should be we looking out for? Let's look at your blood pressure, your weight, your height. All of these kinds of things, they have more time to discuss. And with that regular stream of income, which is not prohibitive, they have much more time to spend with their patients. And as a result, studies have shown that patients uh, are better off under that plan and doctors are certainly better off. Um, I don't think it should come as any surprise. It won't to you since you had a, a doctor for a father, but in working with these medical students, and we do feel that that's the best place for uh, us to attack this problem is on medical school campuses. And I can get into that in a little bit. Yes. Why we do that, why we think it's so important. But uh, these medical students routinely, even though they are very bright, and even though they do look forward to having a prosperous career, really their primary motivation for going to medical school is they want to care for people. Yes. And even the first and second year students will talk about the people who will be under my care. Now, for a fellow like me that has a, a, a an advanced degree in economics where it, you learned it or I learned it when it was a, taught mostly as a quantitative science, that's refreshing yes. <laughs> that they are this bright and they and they and they uh, have uh, the attitude that they are going to take care of this population. These these folks that come to see them, their patients. Uh, that's something that's always heartwarming for me anyway. And it comes into fruition better under direct primary care or direct surgical care, which is the same thing, only it's radiologists and rheumatologists, so on, uh, practicing the direct primary care model, that's really uh, gratifying for me to see that. Okay, so before we get into how the Benjamin Rush Institute began, who founded it, etc., I want right. to go back to something you said, because you said you're an older guy. Well, I'm an older girl. Yeah. And the interesting part about our Medicare system is that you have to have it. In other words, you're not given a choice. And if you decide, well, I want to opt out of it, then what happens is you get charged for it anyway. But if at some later date you decide, okay, I'll give in, you have to pay a higher yeah. fee. So it's really, 
insurance at gunpoint. Let's let's just call it what it is. And right, it's a penalty. They, yeah. they, when you come, if you try to come back in, there's a penalty. Right. So, uh, in other words, we'll punish you. You didn't love us at the beginning, so now there'll be a cost. So, and the I, remedy is so simple. I mean, you're you're a senior. Uh, I am. Uh, when when uh, you you opt in, there's no reason why you can't opt out. I mean, they can they can make rules. They can say, look, you can't just keep going back and forth every other week or whatever. Yeah, I get that. But say at 60 or at 70, you determine, look, I'm pretty healthy. I don't really need this Medicare thing. I'm just opting out. Uh, and when they have their enrollment period, you just say, uncheck my box. I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And then later, when you're 80 or so, you may say, okay, you know what? I think I'll get back in. seems like they would save money doing that, but they would lose control. And that, that too, is a part of the plan. Ask any senior, I think, who is on Medicare, and while they may appreciate it, it is rather expensive insurance, just like many other forms of government insurance are, because the market doesn't set it. It doesn't adjust itself, because uh, people keep saying or keep looking at, well, what about those few people who have these pre-existing conditions? And it turns out that those can be priced in quite quite well and uh, uh, are, are cheaper under private enterprise than they are, were cheaper under private enterprise than they are currently treating. Yes. Uh, because you're adding another layer between the doctor and his or her patient. So one of the things that becomes obvious, and I guess as someone with an economics background, you can see it clearly probably more so than others, that... Uh, this entrenched bureaucracy would lose a lot of its influence, its finances, et cetera, if people just had a direct relationship with their doctor. And so when I, I go, when I'm deciding I need a doctor, I go and interview the doctor mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I ask questions. Do you know about this? Do you know about that? If I deem that the doctor doesn't know as much as I do about nutrition and side effects and things like that, I, you know, I'm willing to pay for that first visit, but that's it. It just remains one visit. And I don't think a lot of people have the idea that they should, they're the ones responsible for their health, not a doctor. So you need to know as much as you can know about your age, your inclinations, things like that, so that you can find a good practitioner. And I think that's just so far away from what most people think. I, I agree. And talking to these doctors, these direct primary care doctors in Kansas City this past week, you would have been hard pressed. I can't make a blanket statement, but you you would have been hard pressed to find a physician that would have disagreed with you about that. I had a doctor once who said he has two kinds of people who come to his office, children and students. And he always appreciates the student who is researching, is learning, will say to him, could you give me some books I should read? But then he says they're the children who come and say, take care of me, fix me. And he said, oftentimes those people don't even do what you tell them to do. And he sort of said, you got to give doctors a break because people will take a pill, but they won't lose weight or they won't go out and exercise. So it becomes easier for the doctor to make the patient happy as opposed to make the patient well. Well, you bring up a good point because uh, one of our student uh, chapters, uh, it's a pre-med chapter, it's a mentoring chapter at the University of North Texas at Dallas, uh, held a, um, uh, a an event here about two or three weeks ago 
and the vice president of the Texas Medical Association, John Flores, uh, attended. And he, one of his specialties, even though he's a general practitioner, one of his specialties is treating diabetics. And he enjoys that process because it is a, a problem that in many instances can be rather, I don't want to say easily, but simply solved. And so he will say there are so many drugs, there are so many, a, a variety of drugs, depending on the, the patient that can be used. Not, not the patient, should, there's not all drugs for just one patient, but you can go, there's a wide selection available to the doctor uh, to treat that patient. But he said the, 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 the thing that's not negotiable is that uh, you have to have a, a better diet, your nutritionist, so you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate that. And exercise, and it, not a lot of exercise, and and you don't have to restrict yourself too harshly on on the diet, but you've got to do those two things in order to uh, lose the threat of diabetes, which usually means losing weight, especially if it's type two. Right. Um, but he actually looks forward to that, and it's a, it's very easily treated. And uh, again, sometimes. If the doctor, so you have a doctor like Dr. Flores who uh, understands the disease. He un, he's, he's treated it with too many people. He's known for treating it. You're talking about people interviewing doctors. Word gets around. This guy can help you uh, and they'll come see him. And so, but yet he still, in some instances, if he's uh, depending on insurance, he has to worry about what the insurance company is going to authorize. That's called desktop medicine. Mm -hmm. Where the government, the hospital, the the pharmaceutical company, or some other third party, the insurance company intervenes and says, "No, no, 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 no! You're not going to prescribe that therapy. We have to. You have to prescribe this therapy over here." Doctors can live with that if they continue to practice their the the craft, the skill they've learned. But I can't imagine too many of them like it, and that is in uh, uh, the growth. That is what contributes to the growth of this direct primary care and direct surgical care and just totally divorcing yourself from insurance. So in a lot of ways, what you're talking about reminds me of what happened in the 1960s, 70s and 80s in the U.S., that parents stopped being satisfied with the education or lack thereof their children were getting in government schools and decided, you know what, we're going to homeschool. And at first, people were like, oh, that's terrible. Your children will be so underprepared. And yet, time and again, <laughs> when tested, children who come out of that kind of free environment to learn at their pace, et cetera, um, do much better. So I do think medicine is the next frontier that people who appreciate liberty need to pursue, which brings us back now to the Benjamin Rush Institute. Somebody came up with this idea that we have to do something different. By the time people have gotten their medical degrees, they're already entrenched in a system and it's harder to penetrate. So BRI goes right to medical schools. Explain a little bit about how it was founded, who founded it, and the kind of progress you're seeing. Well, Sally Pipes, who's our board chairman, uh, our chair, I should say, uh, and uh, she's the uh, also the uh, leader at the Pacific Research Institute. And originally it started as a project of the uh, Pacific Research Institute. It was called the Benjamin Rush Society. Well, uh, as you might imagine, Sally has a pretty 
pretty full plate. So uh, I think they went along for a couple of years. They had a couple of different directors, well, more than a couple of years, maybe. And uh, then, but then they decided, well, they would spin it off and let it be its own organization, uh, similar to, but not really a whole lot like the Federalist Society for Lawyers. In 2013, so we're approaching our 10th anniversary uh, for being an independent organization. In 2013, they split off and uh, uh, an emergency room physician who was very interested in public policy took it over. And then in 19, oh, excuse me, 2017, uh, they asked me uh, to uh, come in and, and help them grow the organization. And so that's where we are now. Uh, there was another Benjamin Rush Institute, event, excuse me, Benjamin Rush Society event that was held every year. And I forget the organization that held it, uh, but they had, it was an annual thing. And as long as it was a project of PRI, they didn't mind uh, the, the name being used. But then when it became its own organization, they were like, hey, time out. We need you to, to change your name. So we did. We changed it to the Benjamin Rush Institute. Okay. And so we've been, uh, we're, we're approaching our 10th anniversary. So tell me a little bit about how you are actually changing the paradigm. What, it, what's a chapter like? How do chapters get started? Things like that. Well, you mentioned our, uh, our mission statement. You read our mission statement. And so we achieve the, the, the inherent goals and, and, uh, uh intentions of that uh, mission statement by developing chapters. Uh, at medical schools uh, throughout the United States. Uh, we had three international chapters prior to COVID, but we lost those during COVID. We're, we're reestablishing them now. And we just, we pay for, uh, we, we cover all expenses for our programs for these students. So for example, we developed these chapters at medical schools, primarily. Recently with the um, use even in direct primary care and direct surgical care practices of nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, uh, so on and so forth. We have established not only medical school and residency chapters for for medical residents, but also nursing chapters uh, for nurses, especially graduate nurses, and and those nurses who become physicians assistants and nurse practitioners. So those we use, we also do a pre-med for those school, those students in pre-med, like the ones at University of North Texas at Dallas, where we match them up with a, with a medical school so that as they, uh, uh, continue their pre-med studies and, and get ready to go to medical school, they can uh, work with medical students to say, Hey, what about this? What should I be doing? How should I approach the MCAT? So on and so forth. The MCAT being the, yes. one of the exams they have to take to get into medical school. Now, many campuses, they allow us, uh, they allow the students to form a club. We are not welcome on other campuses. That <laughs> so was going to be my our, next question. <laughs> my students or our students develop the chapter, but they just meet off campus or they meet informally on campus. They just don't form a club. So how can this work? Well, sometimes it works swimming. Uh, we have, uh, for example, at Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is part of the University of North Texas Health Science System uh, Center here uh, in uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, in Dallas, Denton, that area. We have a a, a chapter. 
It's got about 10 or 12 students in it consistently, sometimes as many as 20, sometimes it'll fall back to 10, so on and so forth. It, it just depends. But there are others that they, they have, in fact, they have just told, and we had emails sent to us from the dean of uh, student activities or something like that, saying these are people we don't agree with. So we're pegged as being right wing. We actually are nonpartisan. Now, why do I say that? Well, I have a great example, or I wouldn't have said it, I guess. Okay. We tried to, or, or we uh, approached students. Uh, there was some student, I think, that had heard about us, sent, sent a, uh, an email to our director of chapter development. He sent an email to uh, the group. It was, a, it was a dermatology group, a group of dermatology students. And uh, she, the, the, the young lady who was the medical student, she was not only a member of that dermatology group, she was a member of the women in medicine group. Well, he sent emails to those members. One of them didn't like it. So this is right wing. We don't like. So the dean of student, we have the emails that sent, sent to him and said, we don't agree with these people. Don't have anything else to do with them. Now you can imagine that. Talk about liberty. I mean, anyway, well, what worked in our favor was that the students for a national health program, Medicare for all, uh, wanted to hold a debate. And they were like, great, we'll ask the Benjamin Rush Institute come and our guy will just cream them. <laughs> we said, fine, that's great. We love to talk about medicine. Sounds <laughs> so, like a pride goeth before a fall situation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we went up there. We paid all the expenses for the our students to attend. We had uh, not only a couple of students, uh, of course, if they were there in Northeast uh, in the area where it was, the location, the medical school, then uh, the sp expenses were negligible almost. But we did bring in students uh, from three medical schools in the surrounding area uh, in that region. And we paid for their travel. We paid for any incidental meals, so on and so forth. We paid for our speaker to show up. And we said, look, we don't want this to be a debate. We don't want to, we don't want to be this, uh, you know, a food fight. What we want is more of a colloquia, a panel discussion, colloquia type of debate where you bring up something and I counter that if I disagree with you or if I disagree with you, I tell you why. And it turned out that the students, predominantly students for a national health program who attended, had a lot of questions. And their questions were mostly, well, this guy, the guy from the Benjamin Rush Institute says this, that, and the other thing. What are we, how do we counter that? And of course, the answers from their speakers were insufficient. Because they're doctors, they want to care for people, they, they, or they're becoming doctors, and they want to care for people. They mistakenly, under Medicare for All, see themselves as uh, at the top of the food chain. Mm -hmm. And when, that, when, it, when Medicare for All is explained that it's the insurance company, the government, the pharmaceutical, or the big hospital that you work for, that is going to be dictating how you practice medicine. They don't cotton to that too well, as they say in East Texas. Mm -hmm. And we left there with not, I wouldn't say converts, because that's not our purpose. What we left there with was a lot of students that woke up a little bit. They weren't woke. They were woke up. They were awakened. And uh, they still 
communicate with us. They they actively have involved uh, the the student and students that attended that uh, that meeting uh, very much went in our favor, and that's what we are established for. Uh, is to get on there because they're not going to hear about any of this. They are no, the, the, the instructors we routinely, the faculty uh, routinely tell us either they are completely in the tank for government sponsored Medicare, government mandated um, uh, healthcare like Medicare for all, or they are against it and they are afraid to say anything about it uh, in terms of what that would do to their career. Or, and this is the one that really gets me. Uh, it's bad enough if you won't speak up, if you, if you just you know it's wrong and you, you've got these students under your care and you won't say anything about it. But then there are those who say who just shrug and say, hey, you know what? I think that's the way it's going to go. I think Medicare for all is where we're headed in, in the American healthcare system. Am I doing my my students a favor by not preparing them to go that way? And I just, you know, it just. That makes that particular response makes me furious because look at Canada. It came out this week, and I, I think it was Medscape was the uh, was the uh, publication that the in Canada you can be you can be fined, you can be sued. I don't know if they can put you in jail, but sometimes you might prefer that uh, if you get out of that healthcare system. Like if you come across the line, the the, the U.S. line. To be treated by an American doctor, there are penalties for that. Well, there are now two provinces in Canada have said those primary physicians, they want them to, U.S. licensed physicians, they are openly recruiting them to come. I think it's Nova Scotia, and I forget the other one, openly recruiting them to come to Canada uh, because they uh, lack so many doctors. One of the reasons they lack doctors, the same reason they do in all other of these uh, uh, mandated systems is that the doctor is simply not paid that well. It is a cattle call system that, you know, if you, all you need if, uh, is uh, you have the sniffles or you think you're getting the flu or something like that, that's easy enough to, and then direct primary care would take care of that. But that there the government takes care of it. But if you have a more serious problem, and you hear these horror stories of people dying literally to uh, waiting to get care mm-hmm. because uh, before they can get care, uh, they are they they die of the disease they were trying to get treatment for. So you either ration by price, which is the free enterprise system, or you ration by waiting and you ration by the provision of care. And that's why the last few years of life. They are the most expensive, usually healthcare wise, uh, are the most expensive. So what's the logical conclusion there? So you you have these things that you can prepare for uh, and the free enterprise system would ration that care in a more equitable way and has proven to do so with direct primary care, and direct surgical care than the government, so-called government system. And I don't want to uh, portray that direct primary care, direct surgical care, and other systems that incorporate the free enterprise practice of medicine uh, are are growing so large that they are dwarfing the the insurance companies, but they are they are making significant gains. Yes. So one of the things that comes to mind for me um, as a Christian, I know that there you can't separate what you do for a living to deeply held moral 
and religious convictions. And more and more, it seems as though if you're going to go into government, government mandated medicine, there are certain things that you have to sign on to. Otherwise, not you will lose your license. You'll never get one. You'll never be able to oh. proceed through. So do you think a parallel system of these independent doctors and people will say, look, okay, I'll pay out of pocket. It's more important to me to practice medicine the way I believe is righteous to do so. So there's certain things I will not do. I won't give gender affirming care because I don't think that's biblical or I won't um, help somebody end the life of an unborn baby or somebody's old now and says, I want to die. I'm not going to help them kill themselves. Is there a future for that? And do we need to be patient so that instead of seeing it happen tomorrow, if it takes 10, 20, 30 years, we should be moving in the right direction? Well, I think right now, on those cases that do reach the Supreme Court, and this is not, quote unquote, the conservative majority, it gets a wider acceptance than that. Like, for example, um, uh, I think there was a, gr- a group of nuns that run a clinic or something like that, and the, the, the Supreme Court sided with them on uh, certain aspects about about treatments that, that they would give. And I don't know enough about that case other than the Supreme Court did side uh, on uh, the, the uh, uh, nun, with the nuns about their religious beliefs and how they run their clinic. I do, but on, but on the larger part, where you're talking about not just direct primary care, or direct surgical care, but as I mentioned earlier, these uh, fee-for-service physicians that run a fee-for-service practice, here's my prices, here's what you'll pay. Or they run a healthcare sharing ministry, which are becoming extremely popular. Uh, 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 these groups, uh, some of them not religiously motivated, they're, they're right to call them uh, ministries. They just are, are gathering together to, to do what insurance was invented to do in in the beginning was to share the risk to say that those of us who for example have children we can pay a, a small amount to insure against the fact that we might have a child that god forbid has spina bifida so that the parents who do have that child can afford the treatment for that child and all of the rest of us are insured against it if it should happen to us but there are a lot of healthcare sharing ministries that are religiously based. But the whole point is to band together to share the risk. And uh, with the uh, and the, the amazing thing to me about uh, the, these forms that do that, these forms of practice that do that, is that it always turns out cheaper, or should say less expensive. Uh, and the patients are more satisfied. The physicians are more satisfied. When you have as many physicians resigning and just giving it up and saying, I can't do this anymore. It, and it mostly takes the form of physicians who are in their 50s or 60s and have had the good luck to uh, stockpile uh, enough financial resources that they can, uh, will just go ahead and resign. And then you have uh, others who give up and just say, I'm going to go to work for the, the bad guys, the insurance companies and the big hospitals, so on and so forth. Uh, and they just leave that pra- the practice of medicine altogether. Uh, one, one of the uh, supporters of not just our group, but other uh, liberty-associated groups, 
was is a physician in Raleigh, North Carolina, she's a family uh, physician, and she quit. She just said, I'm tired of it. 60, 80 hour weeks. And I, yeah, I'm making $175,000, $200,000 a year. And that's, you don't laugh at that. That's a lot of money uh, for anybody. But she's having to work 60, 80 hours a week to earn it. And her weekends aren't hers. She's got a family. She's having children. She quit. She said, I'm gone. Her husband was uh, attending a conference as spouses, both male and female, will often do uh, while her husband was attending uh, the sessions of his conference. She's just walking the halls. And she sees this direct primary care conference. Well, I'm a doctor. She walks in and uh, they start talking to her about it. Long story, even longer. Within about six or eight months, she becomes a direct primary care physician. She's making about twice what she was making before. She said, I, I, I can't always pick my kids up from school, but I can sure have breakfast with them in the mornings. And I have my weekends mostly to myself. She does keep some Saturday morning hours and things like that, and she is available for emergencies. She's much happier. She's practicing medicine now. She's practicing medicine the way she that medicine was meant to be practiced. Uh, and she's being re rewarded not only financially, but emotionally and uh, with her family and everything else. So that's what happens with this direct primary care. And you wouldn't think it would be that way. Because when I first started looking at this, being a, an economist, I was like, now, how can that work that it's actually cheaper uh, and, and right. that they, they are able to serve their patients more? But that's what happened. And I do think, and this is even true in education, a lot of people start the process of wanting to become a teacher because they want to help students. They want to impart knowledge. They want to teach things that they think are important. And then the administrative bureaucracy starts having a chokehold on them. And one of two things happen. They leave saying, I can't do this, or they become cynical and, and they just decide, well, that's just the way it is. You would hope that people who just can't take it anymore in these bureaucratic systems get enough time to recuperate from the stress of it all and find their way into these primary care situations where they can actually reap the rewards of hearing that their their patients, their clients, who oftentimes become their friends, get better. That's why I say instead of expecting an overnight thing, we have to take baby steps. And in the process, the effort, I think, will gain traction. Have to keep pushing. Just have to keep pushing. And right. uh, there's a there's a physician. I haven't talked much about fee for service, but there's a physician that runs a practice in uh, South Central Texas. Therefore, she runs into a, a great deal of, of uh, migrant uh, uh, patients, and she basically just has set price. You you come in, you need me to to reset a a broken arm or whatever. That's uh, $50 or whatever. You can't pay? Okay, well, don't worry about it. <laughs> and uh, she never charges a patient who has cancer. She asks their, her patients to pay, but she has what she calls a no receivables practice. That is, she's not. if you can't pay the $50, she's not going to send you an invoice 30 days from now mm -hmm. or whatever. And and she is It's an extremely lucrative practice. Because uh, when when now a lot of people won't pay, and I'm sure there are some people who find out when she'll if she'll do it for free if you don't pay her, they'll take advantage of that. 
But by and large, most people won't. If they can't pay the $50 today, they'll bring it to you next week or next month or whatever. Exactly. Or they'll bring it. It's like the lawyers used to used to hear these lawyers who used to practice in uh, in certain parts of Texas and they get paid in cattle <laughs> because the <laughs> rancher or couldn't couldn't afford to pay them otherwise. And so sometimes she gets goods received and whatever. She it's just something she negotiates with her patients. But it's an extremely lucrative practice. Uh, and it, it uh, establishes a bond between her patients and herself that uh, is really hard to find in any other uh, profession. Yes. So pushback, um, huh? pushback. There's going to be pushback, pushback, no doubt, on college campuses sure. you've already, or uh, medical schools. You've already told us about that. Can someone like this woman practice, even though someone might say you're ruining things for other doctors, you can't do this, otherwise you'll lose your license. Can people practice, quote unquote, without a license? Well, I don't know about practicing without a license. What you have, for example, when, uh, and this is not widespread, but there are students, medical students who receive their degree, their four-year degree, either MD or DO, and they don't match for a residency. Now, if they don't finish that residency, they cannot, quote unquote, practice medicine, meaning they can't write prescriptions, things like that. But there is a call now uh, for them to alleviate some of the problems in family care. So they would become sort of in that interregnum or, or interspace there between being a graduate of a medical school and being a practicing physician who can practice regularly. So there's some of that going on uh, and to have them do that. Cause there are so many that don't match uh, every year. And that's totally within con the control of Congress I see. Uh, or these big hospitals that they can establish these residencies, have them approved and, uh, and get, accept students into them. So that's, you, you can, can you imagine going through, the four years of medical school, which a lot like law school is a very grueling process. Uh, it's intellectually uh, difficult. You know, I routinely ask these medical students, is medical school, especially the first couple of years, is that more, is that more difficult for you than your upper level graduate courses were, say in biochemistry, biology, whatever you got your degree in? And they say no. In fact, in some cases, it's a little bit easier. But you're drinking water through a fire hose. That's the problem. Is it just they're throwing it at you? It's 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 a tremendous amount, a massive amount of information that you have to uh, not only uh, learn but be able to show that you are becoming proficient uh, at using that information. So I, um, I don't know that it's about practicing without a license. That that would be something that the the you'd have to go through each state board, so on and so forth to to deal with that. So that, that doesn't worry me nearly as much as the students, the incoming students. We have a chapter at the University of Oklahoma School of Medicine. It refuses to meet on campus. Like, well, Oklahoma, what we, the University of Oklahoma? <laughs> They're like, yes. And the, the, I asked the student leader there, this has been the student leader from a couple of years back. I said, well, why do you meet off campus? And she said, well, we don't feel welcome on campus. Mm -hmm. Fully 70%, in her opinion, 
of the incoming, what they're called MS1, first-year medical students, are fully woke. Oklahoma. Wow. Okay. So you've been going on probably before 2013, and you just kind of, you know, branched off from Pacific Research Institute, right? That's correct. And so you've had people who've gone through medical schools, are in practice. Do they become the mentors for up-and-coming medical students? Not as much as we'd like. Okay. (laughs) And the reason being, some of our chapter leaders, some of our best chapter leaders, once you get in that residency, it becomes difficult to find time. And if you can find some time, you want to spend it with your family or, or you want to kick back and relax. You don't want to be running over to the medical school taking care of uh, MS1. The, the way this works is a medical school works is we mostly work with MS1 and MS2, first and second year students. Okay. When they finish their uh, second year and they take their step one exams and they move on, they go into clinicals. That's the one where you see the doctor approach the patient in the hospital and he's got four or five residents along with him saying, okay, what are we going to do for Mr. Walker or Ms. Schwartz? How are we going to treat the, 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 uh, uh, the illness that they have? So on and so forth. that's their third and fourth year. By the time they get into that third and fourth year, if we don't already have them, we, the likelihood that we're going to get them is not nearly as good. Uh, I would say, uh, if, if the first encounter we have with a medical student is the third or the fourth year, we have about a 50 to 60% chance of having them come with us rather than a MS1 or MS2 that knows about us and has, has a little bit more time on their hands. Uh, but once they get into residency, even some of our best chapter leaders, they just kind of go dark. We don't hear from them. I see. Uh, okay. So where do you get your mentors from? The mentors mostly are the medical students, like first and second year, who can talk to pre-med students. And we like, for example, at this uh, at this uh, event we had at uh, the University of North Texas at Dallas, that is a pre-med uh, group. And we had two students from the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine come over. And I think one student from the uh, University of North Texas Medical School there in South da- or uh, downtown Dallas. Uh, come down and, and attend that with them and take some questions from them after. And, and they, the, the students were, uh, probably wanting to talk to them just as much as they were wanting to talk to the physicians we had there as, as our speakers. I see. So let's say people listening to this want to get involved. Um, maybe okay. they're not medical professionals, but they would like to help the cause. How would they do that? They could, they can, Write to me, Richard at BenjaminRushInstitute.org, Richard at BenjaminRushInstitute.org. And I, I think uh, and I, I would be remiss uh, on behalf of the students that we sponsor. Uh, we, for example, at this FMMA situation I went to, this conference I went to last week, we had four medical students. We paid all of their expenses, travel uh, air and ground. Uh, there, we paid for their, uh, hotel rooms. We paid for their, uh, incidental meals that the conference didn't cover. Like, for example, there was one night they didn't have a dinner because they wanted the doctors to network with each other. Well, we got a couple of doctors that would go with us with the students and we provided that meal for the students and we paid for the doctors too mm-hmm. <laughs> and the doctors with them so they could network. That was the whole point to network with those doctors. And then 
at the end of the conference, they ended it at noon on Saturday. And so uh, we took the students to lunch that day to, um, and this, this kind of gets expensive uh, that day to just kind of debrief and, and, and decompress. And why don't you get out of this? What do I, what do I as the executive director do need to do to follow up with you? So this all requires money. Now I, I will say, Having said that, having having done my my uh, appeal for for money for donations, we don't need a lot. If if we got just uh, we're a small organization, we stay very lean. We are we are virtual by design, so we can we can stay as lean as possible. If we could just get fifty dollars or a hundred dollars from every DC physician, DC DPC uh, practitioner we would be less charged, severely charged uh, for making our budget every year. We are funded by uh, two or three generous organizations. They don't give us six figures, but they do give us a substantial amount of money, which helps us fulfill our obligations uh, to our students. But uh, this conference outreach program, for example, where we had three students go to the pre-to-care conference in Houston, uh, sponsored there by uh, uh, a fellow that works with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and uh, which is a very large group, and the uh, Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We sponsored, I think, six students to go to that uh, conference. Uh, and, and again, that's that's very expensive, but it doesn't require a great deal of money from every donor. Yes. And so we appreciate, and and, and I can tell you, that that our budget is extremely small and, and salaries are not great. We don't pay a whole lot of money to anybody, including me. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to fall on the sword just like uh, I make all of the uh, other folks associated with us do. Right. But yeah, that the, the two big things are to contact me and, and just get involved in their local area, especially if it's a doctor, a physician listening to this, find your local medical school. We don't have to be the only ones sponsoring students at these conferences. They can sponsor one on their own. Sure. Um, it, it's a little bit easier working through us only because we have students there already. And that, you, you know, just kind of uh, helps to have more students working together rather than little separate ones. But, uh, you know, we're, we, we're happy. The whole thing is to get students to the conferences. Who pays for it and gets credit for that uh, is is a little bit different. Like, for example, when we went to the Docs for Patient Care conference, well, all three of those conferences I mentioned, uh, the organization sponsoring the conference uh, gave us either a cut rate or uh, allowed our students to register for free. Uh, so we didn't have to pay the conference fee, uh, but we had to pay all the other expenses. Right. Those conference so, fees can be high. Yeah, what's obvious to me, since your purpose is to equip medical students to have them become effective ambassadors and that you're willing to change people's outlook one mind at a time um, and then consider that that will proliferate because freedom has a way of making itself known. And it sounds like you're not interested in confrontational situations. What you want to be is where medical students are gathering so that you can have your ambassadors befriend them, teach them some things, give them a different outlook. And then I imagine the Institute has regular publications, blogs, things like that, right. so that people can check in and see the things you're saying. BenjaminRushInstitute.org. And we have a blog, a Pathways to Practice blog, and a Substack. 
So can the average layperson who is just interested in medical freedom benefit from being affiliated with BRI? We keep them totally informed about everything we're doing, try to keep them up to date as frequently as possible about what's going on. And yes, they can. And we we rely on those uh, types of folks. We don't rely just on physicians uh, to uh, to keep us going. Thank you for sharing. I hope you get a lot of inquiries. And uh, I've I've learned something about creating parallel systems. And that is as long as you're not impatient, you can make headway. There you go. Thank you, Andrea. I appreciate it. Very good. Listeners, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us and look forward to talking with you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.